In this episode, we're going to answer some of your questions and you've sent us some great ones. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. We receive lots of questions through Facebook, our website, and from our members. So today we are sharing some of those questions because if one person has asked, then we know there are others who will have similar questions. But before we get into that, what's your special house of the week this week, Megan? I can guess. <laughs> can you? Can you say uh, that? <laughs> is that in Nashville? No, it's not, but it should be, shouldn't it? It's actually in China. So for those of you who <laughs> listen rather than watch the podcast, um, this is a piano house and it also has a big glass guitar in front of it. It's fascinating. It's I hideous. am having the most fun <laughs> finding these interesting houses. And this is actually one that's lived in. Well, they're all lived in, but, uh, yeah, fascinating. Love it. What's our first question, Veronica? Yeah, it's a bit weird, that one. Okay, our first question is from Kira. And Kira has actually, she's a, a member, she's doing the course mm-hmm. and she has given us a lot of questions and they're really good questions, okay? Mm-hmm. So this is, um, we've got a few from Kira in this episode. I know I have to compromise on various things, but I do wonder what the right compromises are. When your mm-hmm. options all seem kind of crappy, to be honest, <laughs> how do you sort the actual crap from what could have growth potential? Is a fixer-upper worth the renovation costs and how much work is allowed in apartments anyway? Do properties in Sydney even go for less when they clearly need work? And more granularly, great word, how much is an internal laundry worth? I love it. Does a cramped bathroom configuration uh, to accommodate a washing machine add value or subtract because the door is now hitting the toilet? And for the love of God, can I fix that purely hypothetical example here? You've got to love it. <laughs> so much to unwrap here. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? And there's more to this question, but let's just hit that one because the actual fixer-upper is, it is interesting in a hot market. We do notice that the gap between those that are done and those that need to be done uh, gets smaller. Narrows. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because 
everyone thinks that's my way to get into the market. Okay, I know I'll be a renovator. And so that pushes those prices up probably disproportionately to those that have renovated. Do you find the same thing it's, in Queensland? It still looks affordable. So a, a fixer-upper, something needs a bit of work, you know, Kira's talking about apartments, renovating those. You can also apply the same sort of thinking to houses. Um, you know, it, the idea that I can get into something that has a similar sort of size but I do some work and add some value to it, that becomes a more attractive proposition to people in rapidly rising markets and mm. therefore the the disparity between what you pay for a renovation a renovator then add on the cost of the renovation actually starts to exceed what you can purchase the finished product for um, now, as as properties continue to rise in prices and, and there's upward pressure on prices, that disparity becomes less and less. So, yeah, it, it's a tough one in a rising market. Um, you've got to be really careful that that you're not going to overcapitalise, and and that's a per property kind of proposition, isn't it, mm. Veronica? Same as you know, great question around um, internal laundries because I know it's one of your really big value add strategies is to to maybe even reconfigure an internal laundry into a second bathroom to add value for an apartment absolutely mm. interestingly enough it depends on what suburb of sydney you're looking in in the real inner inner city where there are sort of a lot, a lot even older styles sort of 1920s 1930s apartments mm. uh, a lot of those buildings have shared laundries and uh that's a you know, some of them are pretty grungy too, yeah, shared washing yeah. machines even. Sometimes you've got your own PowerPoint, you put your own machine in there. But, you know, nobody really wants to be going down washing the washing machine on the dryer, you know, for Wondering hours. if someone else is going to take out their smalls from yeah. the washing machine. Ew. <laughs> Ew. Uh, fighting over machines. So you can understand why the advantage of having your own internal laundry is a big plus in those mm. buildings. So, you know, some buildings where you've got the only laundry is like in the dungeon downstairs in every, every apartment apartment you know uses that same laundry not so great some some apartments have a laundry on each floor and there's only two or three apartments using it and so that's sort of doable you know it's so it's horses have them in the garage too don't they a lot of them are in garages in the older complexes in Brisbane. yeah yeah so there's there's sort of internal laundries and there's internal laundries and so then in some of these buildings where you've got this hideous dungeon laundry and that's the worst type of laundry really yeah yeah you will see people will put a washer dryer unit in the kitchen quite often, or maybe squeeze in the bathroom like you're talking about where you can't close a door because, uh, anyway, yeah. It, so you see that. and That hypothetical just kind of rolled on and on, didn't it? <laughs> it did. I loved it. The thing is that, you know, when you're looking at fixer-upperers, the actual crap has bad bones, you know, and, and bad bones means it's like it's got really bad light or an awkward floor plan that can't be fixed or... Room sizes un- are too tight. Yeah, busy road, ugly outlook, you know, building itself is pretty horrible. There's lots of, you know, so I think fundamentally you've got to look at everything that's around the building and, you know, if that's a crappy apartment in a great building, um, proportions are good, all that sort of thing, then then it's probably got a better probability of doing up than if it's just a crappy apartment in a crappy mm. building. It's also a good idea if there's a few apartments in the complex and the floor plans are reasonably similar, just do a little bit of a history search in Google to see if there are any other apartments that have sold recently where they have done these sorts of improvements. Such so a might, good idea. might pick up one. You, know, you might actually see an old ad that sold a couple of years ago where they have converted or changed the floor plan slightly and go, oh, wow, that's actually, that really works. I can see how that, that could function really quite well. So you can pick up a little bit of history or sales history um, about the apartments or even if they've been rented 
So the photos and mm. the floor plans from rentals could be could give you some clues as to what might work and what, what might not. But that's not to say that every layout in a complex is the same. There are there are differences. So I'm actually yeah. comparing apples with, with apples. There's also, you know, I guess the one good thing about buying a fixer-upper is if it's livable now, you know, with a big, bit of a clean, sometimes it's, mm. it's what you need to do to it, um, you can take your time to renovate it. So even though you might be paying a little bit more, you know, for the gap between the cost of buying it and the cost of renovating it is going to add up to more than the cost of a renovated one, but you can't afford a renovated one now, mm-hmm. but over time you better renovate, that then, you know, that can be a good way to actually get into the market. And apartments are easier to renovate in the sense that the scope is more contained, you know. Yeah. So you've got an extra layer of approval you've got to go through. You've got to go through the owner's corporation or the community association or whichever jurisdiction you're in, the actual mm. people running the building, um, and potentially with council as well, depending on what you're planning on doing. Yeah. But, but you know, you can't, you're not extending it, you know, unless you've got some further, one of those very rare places where you can go into the roof cavity you're generally speaking working within the envelope that's there and there are constraints to that. So that those constraints can keep, will keep a lid on costs. Mm, mm. And, and so, it's very important to understand what those constraints are before you enter into a contract because, yeah. you know, if you're planning on putting air conditioning in but the owner's corporation has never approved an air conditioning unit for any other apartment in the complex, then mm. that if that's a deal breaker, that's a deal breaker. You know, don't assume that you can build in a balcony and create a bigger sunroom or oh, yeah. if a sunroom's been built in that you could open it up and have a balcony again. So those sorts of assumptions are really you know, really want to dig deep into those if they're going to be the ways that you add value or add livability to the apartment for yourself. Absolutely. Now, Kira did go on with her question. says, also, at inspections and enlistings, I'm noticing that there seems to be a lot of dot, dot, dot trickery, like <laughs> putting music on when there's traffic noise or burning a candle because the building is musty or quick and dirty paint job or calling a studio or one bedroom and, 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 and. Are people actually <laughs> falling for this stuff or are they seeing something else, some other potential in a property that I'm not attuned to yet? I would answer that they're probably falling for it. <laughs> they, could, they could be. They could be in that state of FOMO. We, we, you know, Veronica and I often talk about, you know, learn from each other's experiences with clients and what we're doing and how we're approaching things and, and those sorts of things. We're talking about a client who had a little, you know, an extreme case of FOMO and nearly nearly overshot the mark in terms of what she was prepared to pay for a property. But um, yes, yes, people can fall for these sorts of things. Um, it can help you see how you yourself could, you know, drown out the noise of traffic if that was the way you wanted to go. Veronica and I have a different opinion of whether a C or a B, B grade property is worth compromising for. Um, but I think, you know, once you start turning yourself onto these things, when as buyers agents, when we walk into a property, we don't see styling, we don't see candles, we don't smell, we, we actually always see our walls, floors, room sizes, you know, the bones, the functionality, the natural light. We turn lights off in bedrooms to see what natural light and, and turn air conditioning off to see what ventilation's like looking at the actual, you know, the case, the bones, rather than anything that's masking that is a really good habit to get into because it means you're looking at what the property would be like um, taking all of their prettiness out of it and, and you know, starting with bones and um, redecorating it yourself if you like. Here's, here's a classic Traffic noise, right? Okay, so we're filming. So we're filming and recording this. You can watch us on YouTube if you so desire. <laughs> Sitting here in our little Zoom studio, um, you know, I'm looking at properties in lockdown. There's less traffic around. 
Yes, that's true. And less aircraft noise, actually, for that matter. Absolutely. I have to sort of say to clients, you know, I I do a video, particularly in lockdown, you can't inspect a property with the client. So I do a video um, of me walking through the house, making all my comments as if I was with the client. In fact, clients have had the funniest feedback for me on this because I even include my conversations with the agents. They're like, oh, my God, you're heckling the agent. It's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know I'm doing it. But anyway. Um, and I go out the backyard of some of these houses and I'm like, oh, I've, I can f- hear a faint little bit of traffic noise sometimes. And like, you know, if I can hear faint now, yeah, whoa, it it's like probably going to be a lot louder. Yeah. And so there are some people that are probably taking advantage of a lockdown situation, um, you know, to sell. But certainly if I walk in a place, I could smell fresh paint. You know, you can't mask that. Mm. You cannot mask fresh paint. And so you know that that will be covering up stuff. And whether it's stuff that's a problem or not, you don't know that, but you do know that they've painted it. And so I think, okay, we, Rachel, one of my team, went through a property the other week and it just happened to just started pouring down rain not long before it. This place had been all freshly painted. And, you know, she'd already seen the property once and thought it looked interesting and looked good for the client. The client had seen it and they went back for another look. It just happened to be raining. And, oh, my God, the paint was bubbling, even though it had dried. It, oh, wow. I've never, she said, I've never seen anything like it. She videoed it and, like, get a load of this. And, you know, if that had not and rained, properly. who would have known? But, I mm. mean, also what it did, it actually, there was a massive damp problem with that property, oh, a huge wow. one. In fact, we ended up getting a damp specialist after the building pest inspection who said run. So we right. didn't buy the property. But it was interesting how that the rain, even though it had been freshly painted, it really couldn't mask it. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it hadn't rained though, I mean, we probably would have still got the damp consultant would because have been picked the building up inspection picked it up. Mm, but yeah. we wouldn't have seen it vis- visibly in the way we did. Yeah. So, oh, yes. Good pick up. Yeah. Anyway. Second question. So second question from Diane. Diane, here we go. Okay. Uh, If you have the funds, what, if any, are the downsides to purchasing an investment property with cash? None if you've got heaps of it. (laughs) (laughs) You've got heaps of cash and that's the way you want to go. You know, that's you're going to have cash flow positive from day one. Let's put and it that way. Fantastic. So there's a, a great positive, investment. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be an, an income generating asset, whereas many investment properties tend to, the rent doesn't cover the cost. So they're, they're negatively geared, if you like. There's a shortfall between the income that you get and the outgoings. But what you're missing out on if you do that, if you use all of your cash, so let's say, let's just make an assumption here that it's all of the cash that you're using for an investment property. You're actually missing out on leverage and the more minor benefits that come from tax deductions um, or having a disparity between in an investment property and a, a, um, you know income being less than what the outgoings are. So if you're in the asset accumulation phase of your life, which is you know most people before retirement are ac- accumulating assets, uh, you want to you want your cash to work as hard as possible for you. So you need to talk to an accountant. Um, you know, from a tax perspective and and cash flow, talk to a broker about structuring mortgage structures and borrowing power. And you might actually find that in this asset accumulation phase of, of your wealth, building your wealth, you may be better off borrowing money and using your cash 
to purchase more assets. Now, that's not our advice. This is our suggestion to go to the the (laughs) people who know in their lane what they're Mm. doing. I'll give you an example on that that a client of mine did some years ago, came into an inheritance with quite a lot of money, which is fantastic for them. Yeah. And they came to me and said, right, we want to buy an investment property with this money. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I just... I know that, and they, and I'd already bought their home for them some years earlier, so I knew they had other assets and the rest of it. And I said, I know that you've got this money and that's great. I'd like mm. you to go and get some other advice on the money side of things. I can advise you on the property side of things, but on the mm-hmm. money side of things, I want to make sure you've got good advice on there because I know that if you can borrow money um, and not all of it but some, you can borrow buy more than one. Mm-hmm. And you can actually be cash flow positive even buying more than one and by borrowing some money, right? So they actually went away and they were very conservative by nature and they ended up borrowing, they doubled, they ended up borrowing the same amount of money. Okay. So they had, so they two, had two properties at 50, 50% LVR. Basically, yeah, actually borrowed mm-hmm. slightly less and, yeah, ended up being 50% LVR anyway after costs and the rent covered the mortgage, the money they borrowed. So they been gifted this money, which was amazing, you know, obviously through an inheritance. Mm. But and they could have spent the whole thing on an investment and got income, but they didn't need that income because he had a good no. job and you know already had their home, right? And so it was like we don't need the income now, but we want it when we retire. Mm. So we'll borrow and we'll buy two. And it's not costing us a cent. And it's so in, that that was the solution for them in their mm. circumstances. Mm. So yep. You know, and yet so they could have they, got a good quality asset, single good quality asset, but instead they've ended up with two yeah. good quality assets. Mm. Um, by you, and the by borrowing is just ticked away. Mm. The yep. income, the the rent is just paid off those that debt. Um, you know, they, and now I think because I God that was about ten years ago. Now mm. that they those both those properties now I'm thinking about what we paid for them and what they're worth now. They would have doubled in in value as well in that time. Yeah, not everything yeah. doubles in value in ten years. Okay. Well, that's where the Just asset selection comes in. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was, um, you know, that's that's a good example, a case study, but, if you like. Yeah, so Diane, Diane, I guess the answer to the question is go and get some advice mm. from an accountant and a broker about what your options are and then see which one works for you depending on what phase of your life you're in um, and what you're actually wanting that investment property to achieve for you. So that that's go and talk to a financial advisor, accountant, broker. And we'll add one more thing. If, say, you have um, a small amount of cash, say you've got, say, $400,000, right, and in the area in which you look at, you would buy, to buy a really great property, you'd need an extra $100,000. So under circumstances like that, if by paying cash you end up buying an inferior quality property and you can afford to borrow, that that is another reason you might, that's another disadvantage of buying cash when you if when and if and w- with the right advice you could mm. borrow a smaller amount of money and actually buy a better asset yeah good advice again go back to the experts in their field not your colleague at the water cooler no <laughs> now we've got some more questions from kira and as i said she gave us a lot i and in fact she says well, this. i think do you know what i think we, we certainly find is as as our members do the course um, it actually opens up their minds to mm. to start thinking about things differently and that's when the questions start really coming through and I guess that's the value of, of being part of the community. That's exactly right. Third question, right, from Kira. Um, I have a million more questions, she says. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be sorry you encouraged me, she says. But here's one that just come up. 
price withheld. What does it really mean? That it went cheap? Is there any way to find out what the price was in the end? Uh, Not sure if it's the done thing, uh, but I did very politely ask a real estate agent who had been texting me about a place. Um, I inspected a couple of times and knowing this particular place went mm. for would really help me assess the going rate in the area, which is really important. This is very, very important question for your price research, Absolutely. Um, mm. which might be why they never tell her. <laughs> <laughs> she's saying yeah, look that um you know it's an interesting one because price withheld can often be uh that either the seller or the buyer um wants something about that that purchase or sale to not be publicly disclosed so it might just might just be a confidentiality thing mm. that has been imposed on the agent um it's rarely withheld because it was too low particularly in this market it may be sometimes that the agent um you know they've, they've got a, a good price and the buyers don't want anyone else to know about it mm. yeah in a hot market it's normally the buyer that requests it because they don't mm. want other people knowing what they paid yeah. and in a slow market it's normally the vendor that requests it because or the agent might even actually say we're not going to disclose because they don't want others knowing low prices and I have seen both happen Mm. um so both could be and and it could just purely be that someone's requested it and there's no real reason rhyme or reason and you know when if you've got a good relationship with agents they will tell you it's funny I I'm constantly Mm. texting agents going oh can you tell me can you tell me now obviously Mm. a lot of them know me but there's there's agents I'll text that I've never met never spoken to and I'll text them and ask them I very rarely will they say no Nine, eight, eight or nine times out of ten, I'll, they'll just text me the price, and the rest of the time, they might say, oh, "Look, I can't disclose exactly, but it's in this range." Yeah, and yeah. normally they're telling the truth because when I do find out down the track, it's correct. Only once have I found one that actually massively overinflated a price. I don't know why they did that, but they did that. Seems like an odd one. Or they may have a, another property coming up that's similar, and they don't want to set too high a benchmark Mm. for people to assess the upcoming listing against because, you know, the old adage, quote it low, watch it go, quote it high, watch it die. So if there's a a really high price out there and there's a new listing coming on that's reasonably similar and people are going to compare, then it it may actually kill the auction campaign for the new property for people to buy that sale price. Mm. Yeah, very true. Another question from Kira. I think this is the end of it for Kira. Um, <laughs> at what stage should you get a building and pest inspection? I nearly got one out of sheer curiosity. That's really interesting. I've never That's heard that interesting before. in itself. <laughs> <laughs> and she was interested but not ready for for this particular place but didn't want to throw $500 at a place every time. She's curious. Good, good, good thinking. Good thinking, yep. At the same time, I don't know if I ever feel confident expressing genuine interest in a place before knowing it's not shambles under the display furniture. How much should the inspection results influence your decision to buy and the price you're prepared to offer? And obviously, if it's trash fire, no deal. But if it will cost X to fix Y problem, does it actually affect value, particularly in a seller's market in Sydney, kind of similar to rental costs? So a mm, couple of really good, good questions. Good in questions. There. Let's go back to at what stage should you get a building and pest inspection? It depends on what state you're in and what the process of sale is or the method mm. of sale is. So if you're in Sydney, which uh, you are, and it's an auction, method of sale is a public auction, then you have to get the building and pest inspection before the auction. Sometimes, Veronica, um, the owner may pay for one and the agent may provide it. Be a bit cautious about that. And we talk a lot about that in the course and in how to use, interpret and Mm. and maybe, you know, get around an an owner-supplied building and pest inspection when you should get your own. 
um, you know, you and I work building and pest inspectors all the time. We know who's good, thorough, ethical, you know, you can rely on them and others who you might say, oh, I want to get something independent of this one. Um, So it's before the auction in New South Wales and any time in a public auction scenario because a purchase under public auction is completely unconditional. So you do all your due diligence before the auction. But in places like Queensland, Victoria, you can make conditional offers. So you may make an offer to purchase the property that is subject to certain conditions. And one of those conditions is often a building and pest inspection. So you actually negotiate the purchase, the contract forms that is conditional, and then you you get your building and pest inspection done after the contract has, has or the property has come under your control via a contract, a binding contract. If something comes up, then you can terminate the contract or renegotiate the purchase price based on the findings of the building and pest inspection. So if you can make a conditional offer, then you're not spending the money without knowing that you can actually secure the property. Um, That's a little bit more reassurance for a buyer. And if something comes up, then you've got the opportunity to, to either terminate or renegotiate or proceed as is. Yeah. And certainly in Sydney, in a hot market as well, we can't do conditional offers in New South Wales. I mean, there is a such a thing as a cooling off period, in which case, you know, you make your offer, you sign a contract, you go into the cooling off period, and that's when you get your building and pest inspection done. However, if it's a hot market, they're not going to give you that opportunity. You mm. have to buy it unconditionally. So therefore, you need to get it done as if you're going to auction. And here's a trick. Here's a little tip for young players. And that is that If you're thinking you're going to negotiate the price down on the basis of whatever comes out in the building inspection report, you've probably got another thing coming because, you know, unless it's absolutely diabolical and surprises everybody, it's not going to be a negotiating point. And so it's another reason why getting it done early is a good idea because before you make your offer, at least if you know what you're in for in terms of cost, if it needs a new roof or anything like that, then you're not going to make a higher offer, are you? Because coming down off a higher offer is much harder to get the vendor to agree to you reducing your offer. They just think you're trying it on, you know. So it's there's it's a hard thing to do. It's much easier to do if you actually don't go in with a higher offer in the first place. Again, market-specific and location-specific too. Very much Uh, so. And also um, almost agent-specific as well because some agents... Uh, you know, some agents have follow different processes all within the legislation of their state, but agents can follow and educate their owners differently. Mm. Um, so really understanding and having good dialogue with the agent is really important because it means that you can say to them, look, you know, how, what are you advising your seller uh, to do in terms of offers? And if an agent comes back and says, we only want unconditional offers and you've got to make a decision to spend money on a building and pest inspection before you make your offer. Whereas if if, he, if the agent says, yeah, we're taking all conditions, you know, we're just going to present everything to the owner and it will be about the most amount of money regardless of conditions, then you know you can load up your conditions. So understanding and having that dialogue with, with the agent um, and being able to read between the lines <laughs> sometimes is really helpful. Yes. Fun and games, fun and games. Here's a question for Melissa. I spoke to a buyer's agent late last year before property prices went crazy and I understood that that point that I wanted, what I wanted, which is a home for us, but also to set up for equity in the future. Now, this buyer's agent said I'm asking for the impossible as it's a home for us, it's a personal attachment and that doesn't equate well with future capital growth like it would in an investment. 
I thought, ah, okay, that makes sense. So we decided not to go with the buyer's agent due to costs and we weren't ready to buy. Fair enough. Anyway, fast forward to today and I've listened to almost all your podcast episodes and I cannot reconcile this in my head because I think you and Megan believe that you can indeed buy a home and also have that capital growth in the future if it's a quality asset. Have I misunderstood something? Well, Mel, no, maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit. You can buy an A-grade quality asset, an investment-grade asset as a home, but you may have compromises. Yes. And the compromises might be in your personal opinions and compromising a little bit on that in order to get the higher investment grade or the high potential for capital growth. Um, you know, we, we talk about um, the three Ps, the position, the property, the price. Those are the three things that you can compromise in. And when you're looking for a home, often some of those things just can't be compromised and you might have three children and therefore you have a certain number of bedrooms you need or need to be in a certain school catchment, which will guide and, and really de define what the location. Um, so that it, I guess the compromises that you make for an investment property can be quite different to the compromises that you make for a, a home, but you can buy a good quality home, an A-grade asset in, in, as a home, if you make the right compromises. And I think I'd add in something as well about buyer's agents, which, of course, Megan and I are both buyer's agents, but not all buyer's agents are equal. And so if a buyer's agent wants to basically go and buy you something that's investor grade and, uh, sorry, investor stock, stock rather than investor grade, mm -hmm. right, and they're saying, well, you're fussy, you know, because you don't fit into the, into the mould of what they think is an investment property, then, you know, they, that's the sort of buyer's agent's going to say to you, oh, you're too fussy, we can't deal with you. You need to just do what we say you should buy or buy what we say we should buy. And so it is good for you to question. So when you're saying, you know, we, as in Megan and I, say that it is possible to do both in one property, it is, but that's because yes. we look, we don't believe in a cookie-cutter sort of approach to buying an investment property. Um Whereas if you we do believe in fundamentals, absolutely, I just want to make sure people aren't misinterpreting that 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 statement is we have in every location there are fundamentals that drive capital growth, 100%. and those investment fundamentals are underpin every decision and recommendation we make for investors. That's that's quite different to as you say investment stock, mm. which might be very generic you know, house and land packages or high-rise apartments in, in big complexes. Dual too. occupancy. Yeah, dual oh. They don't have future owner-occupier appeal. Nah. And, and, and scarcity, and future owner-occupier appeal, um, you know, good good bones, good layouts, good locations. These are, uh, we're going to go into this in the next podcast, actually. So I'm, I'm We probably, are indeed. That's an exciting All right. Movie. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. So. <laughs> Last um, question from Matt. You, you hit me because I've, I've got, the, got answer. the answer. Excellent. Yep. I have a question about your personal bank account in relation to your own personal spending and what your spending can cost you in the long run while trying to secure approval from the bank for a home loan. I myself do own, uh, sorry, earn a higher on the higher end. Well done. Good on you. And it's very true. The more you earn, the more you spend. Mm -hmm. Yep. However, I never live outside my own means, have no debt or credit card, and by my own general rule, never let one bank account fall below $10,000 in case of emergency situations. I've recently been buying other small investments, not property, 
Question being, will my spending have a big impact on my ability to get a loan? And Megan went and got the answer to this because if we answered it, we'd be outside of our lane because mm. we're not experts in this area, but we know where to go to get We know the who to go to. And this is a big part of what we teach you in the course is how to identify who to talk to about different things. So mm. we consulted Stuart Wims, who has appeared on, on the podcast previously from Pro Solution. Now, Stuart is a financial advisor and a mortgage broker. So he actually covers both sides and, and, and he's very well regarded Australia-wide in, in, for his expertise and knowledge. Um, and his answer, very short answer, was absolutely it will impact <laughs> your borrowing capacity. Now, he then went on to give me some context around that. And that is that as a result of the Royal Commission that we had, um, ASIC actually requires that the lenders make inquiries as to your current expenditure levels. And the borrower must prepare a really detailed budget on what they have been spending their money on, not what they're going to spend their money on, because we all know when you're, when you're looking to buy a property, you're going to change your spending habits. Like you just do because mm. your fixed costs change, right? And when your fixed costs or your non-discretionary costs change, you change your spending, your discretionary spending habits. You pull your belt in. You absolutely do. So once you've prepared that budget, the lender will then and must then go through your statements and check that what you have said is true. So... Now, Stuart does not necessarily agree with this method of assessment, and it used to be more of a generic sort of expenditure assessment, but now it's very, very thorough, line by line, every credit card, every statement. You can't even hide, you know, your store credit card over there from the bank that you're doing the lending from because they'll get it. Um, but this is post-Royal Commission lending environment, and this is the world that we live in. So it is what it is at the moment. He told me of a really famous case that he calls the Shiraz and Wagyu case. And that's when ASIC took Westpac to court. Now, it was actually the judge in this case that said a borrower's, borrower's expenditure tells me nothing. He went on to say, I could be eating the finest Wagyu and drinking the finest Shiraz and it should not affect what I can borrow. Now, that then became the Wagyu and Shiraz case. <laughs> now, Stuart argues that a person's lavish expenditure actually demonstrates that you have heaps of surplus cash flow. And this is actually a good thing because when your non-discretionary um, expenditure changes and increases, you're pulling your belt on your discretionary spending. Yeah, you cut back That's on the you, Wagyu. You absolutely. You go back to Scotch fillet and you have, you know, may, maybe a mince from <laughs> Queensland that's not, a, not as nice. Oh, never have Shiraz from Queensland. God, it's too warm up there. Anyway. <laughs> it's just awful. Just anyway. But unfortunately, it doesn't change the, the, the way the banks view you. It just doesn't. And there has been a bill put to Parliament seeking to change the law so that Bench, uh, lenders can go back to using benchmark expenditure again, which is what they did pre-Royal Commission. Uh, but it's gone nowhere. It's actually been blocked by the Greens and 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 um and it's just sort of stuck there. And as Stuart said, they probably have bigger fish to fry at the moment than than really putting a lot of time and effort into this. So currently the lenders' hands are tied in terms of the inquiries they need to make. So you just got to suck it up and accept it. His advice is three in the three months leading up to making an application, reduce your discretionary expenditure to maximise your borrowing capacity under current re um, regulations. Now, hopefully we'll get back to a more common sense approach, but that is the way to maximise your borrowing cap capacity at the moment and probably a good way to rediscipline yourself if you have been living a rather lavish lifestyle. A bit like going on a crash diet before your wedding, right? Absolutely. 
Exactly. Yeah. So three months of pulling your belt in. And really, I guess you should use, if you are in lockdown and you've been in lockdown for, you know, a couple of months, then and your spending is uh, being curtailed, then probably a good time to make, put in an application. Cut the Uber <laughs> Eats. Like, yeah, seriously, cut the Uber oh. Eats, you know. Get, maybe yep. swap the Shiraz for a cask. Oh, uh, no, <laughs> never do that. You're better off just to for a beer. while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's, there is a point at which you just, there's a line there's a point. across, isn't yeah. there? Yeah, Lifestyle. Yeah. But Lifestyle. you might want to pull in your online spending. You might want to, you might not be going out for dinner as much, but you might be getting Uber Eats. So this is an opportunity to say, well, maybe for this period of time, we really can pull in our belt. We can we can get our accounts looking schmick. Um, and and th- you know this is you know, an opportunity. While no one else is going on holidays, you, you're not either. There you go. Now we had a great question from Victoria on what makes an A, B, or C grade property, and this one deserves an entire episode. And we're bringing that to you next week. Can't wait. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff. 